Okay, brothers and sisters, um, we are on message, message three. And again, I want to remind you, just especially if you haven't seen the first message, that the general subject is Noah, Daniel, and Job, patterns of living and overcoming life on the line of life to fulfill the economy of God. And all three of these persons are mentioned in Ezekiel 14, verse 14, and in Ezekiel 14, verse 20. And uh, what we see is that God said that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in Jerusalem, they would only save themselves by their righteousness, that he was still, uh, was forced to judge the situation there because of the mainly because of the extreme idolatry and of course apostasy. But what we want to consider is why would the Lord use the persons Noah, Daniel, and Job? And we would never think that Job would be in the same category as Noah and Daniel. Well, we pointed out in the last message that we need to always come to the Bible with the glasses of God's eternal economy on. And of course, God's eternal economy is God, the trying God's plan, the trying God's administration to dispense himself as the Father in the Son by the Spirit into his chosen and redeemed people to saturate their whole being, to regenerate them in their spirit, transform them in their soul, and ultimately glorify them in their body so that they become exactly the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Thus, they have become the bride of Christ. They have become uh, the duplication of Christ, the increase of Christ, and the New Jerusalem is a person. It is, it is a great God-man. It is God in man and man in God. And it's, 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 there's, only, there's never been a couple like this in the universe because this couple, uh, which is, uh, you know, the Lord and us, the bride, well, uh, the Lord is our husband, we're the bride, and the Lord, who's the process trying God, he is in the bride. And the bride, his transformed tripartite people, they are in the husband. And together, they are great God-men. That is God, the goal of God's eternal economy. Now, again, I like to say, when we look at Noah, Daniel, and Job, what we see is that they reveal the triune God dispensing himself into his chosen people to fulfill his economy. And it's very clear when we look at uh, the ministry of the age that with Noah, we can see God the Father in his desire and plan for his building and in his eternal faithfulness in keeping his covenant 
which is his word. Then with Daniel, which we will be on today, what we see in Daniel is Christ the Son as the centrality and universality of God's move. And we see Christ the Son in his second coming as the Son of Man. This is mainly in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Finally, with Job, what we see is God the Spirit in his transforming work to carry out what is hidden in God's heart. That's Job 10, 13. To carry out what is hidden in God's heart so that we might gain God, to become God in life, in nature, and in appearance, but not in the Godhead for the corporate expression of God. So, uh, this is why uh, we have this overall title. I think it's, it's full of divine illumination to see this in this way. And Brother Lee said, this is the key. This is the key, the triune God dispensing himself into his, into his chosen and redeemed people is the key to open up the whole Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. All right, now let's come to uh, message three, which has to do with Daniel. And we see the title of this message is The Victory of the Overcomers Seen with Daniel and His Companions. And I will point this out again, but saints, this term, Daniel and His Companions, is mentioned a number of times especially at the beginning of the book of Daniel. This shows that this is a pattern. We all need some companions to pursue the Lord with, some positive companions. So praise the Lord for Daniel and his companions. And saints, what we can say about the book of Daniel as a whole is that it is a book of the divine revelation concerning God's economy. And what we are going to look at specifically in this message is Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And these six chapters, what they present is God's economy. Listen to this. Not in theology or in teaching, but in a series of six cases as illustrations to show what God's economy is and how God's economy can be carried out. This is just totally, totally marvelous. Now, here are Daniel and his companions. They've been like the other children, you know, the, the Israelites carried away to Babylon because of God's judgment. Well, we can say this apparently, God was defeated in his interest on earth. But actually, God preserved his worship and testimony through these young overcomers, Daniel and his companions. So we will see that their victory was God's victory to turn the age, to bring a remnant of his captured people back to the land of Canaan, which is the good land for the building up of his temple, his house, 
for his expression and for the building up of his city, his kingdom, for his dominion. So this is why these young overcomers were raised up. They were overcomers who were dispensational, a dispensational instrument to turn the age. Now let's come to the outline. Roman number one is a verse from Daniel. It says, those who have insight will shine like the shining of the heavenly expanse. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we need to pray, Lord, give me divine insight and make me, I want to be a person, a member of your body who shines like the shining of the heavenly expanse. And through my shining, I would like to turn many to Christ as their righteousness. And I, with, with all the overcomers, Lord, make me like a star forever and ever. Just pray a simple prayer over that verse back to the Lord. Now we'll see what this, the, the significance of this. A says, everyone in the local churches should be a shining star, a duplication of the heavenly Christ as the living star. The stars are those who shine in darkness and turn people from the wrong way to the right way. So, saints, we need to pray, Lord, make me a shining star. Make me a duplication of the heavenly Christ as the living star. You know, we have, we have a, a book about, uh, you know, finding Christ. Finding Christ. How do we find Christ? We have to follow him as the living star. We have, we have a booklet on this, which I encourage you to get. And even if you've read it, if you read it again, you'll see more. Well, first I would like to point out that Christ is the living star. In Numbers 24, 24 17, this is Balaam's prophecy. You know, at that time, Balak, who was the king of Moab, he wanted, he wanted Balaam, who was a Gentile prophet, to curse the children of Israel. But he couldn't do it. All he could do was bless the children of Israel. Even at one point, we don't have this verse on here, but in Numbers, uh, Balaam says, Blessed is he who bless, blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. That has been proven throughout world history. Whoever blesses uh, the Jewish people is blessed. Whoever curses the Jewish people is cursed. This is not a matter of politics. This is a matter of what the Bible says. I would go further. The church, according to Galatians 6, as the body of Christ, is the real Israel of God. So if you bless the church, you will be blessed. If you curse the church, which means if you, will, if you speak ill of the church, 
you will be cursed. Always speak well of the church. The fact is, no matter um, what you're, you, you say, oh, the church here, you know, Ed, you don't know the church here has a lot of problems. Well, in God's eyes, the church is glorious. The church is glorious. So we need to have a heavenly view of God's people. Now, let me go on. Uh, you know, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, the Lord says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So here, the Lord says he's the morning star. In Numbers 24, 17, Balaam says, there shall come forth a star out of Jacob, capital S, star. That is the Lord Jesus. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter is a capital S. That's the Lord as the star is for God's shining expression. The Lord as the scepter is for God's heavenly ruling and dominion, which fulfills his purpose in Genesis 1.26. Now with, um, I would say this, let me come back to Balaam in the book of Numbers. You know, Balaam told four, four parables, four parables. In the first three parables, we'll just, we'll just use Easter three parables, not just concerning uh, the children of Israel in an earthly sense, but also concerning the church as the Israel of God in a divine and mystical sense. So these first three parables, in speaking about the church as the Israel of God, show that the church in God's eyes is sanctified, perfect, and beautiful. That is wonderful. Now the fourth parable, which I quoted a verse from, shows the heavenly Christ as the star out of Jacob and, and the reigning Christ as the scepter who rises out of Israel. So you have the heavenly Christ for God's expression, and you have Christ as the one with power and authority for God's dominion. Now, saints, I would mention this related to the overcomers. We need to realize that Christ himself is our victory. And if we talk about spiritual warfare, if we talk about victory, we need to realize the victory has already been won by Christ. He has defeated the devil. He destroyed the devil on the cross. He is in resurrection and he is in ascension. He is the ruling one and reigning one. He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords, and He is our victory. We just want to give Him the way to dispense Himself into us so that He can become our victory and our experience and be displayed in us and through us as the victory of the triune God. You know, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, the first part, verse 29a, Samuel is speaking to Saul, and in the recovery version, he refers to God, who God is also Christ, as the eminence of Israel. You can also translate this, the, uh, the American Standard Version 
says that this Christ is the victory of Israel. So he's not just the eminence of Israel. He's not just the preeminent one in the universe and in us. He is also our capital V victory in our spirit. That, that's a wonderful realization to have. Now, I mentioned something about Matthew 2, 2, because the Magi, they were following, uh, following a living star. But at one point, they stopped following the star, and they said, well, well we're near Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. Surely they'll know where Christ is going to be born. And, uh, of course, they made a mistake when they did that because they should have just stuck with the living star. Well, they went to Jerusalem, and uh, they went to Herod, and, uh, of course, there were scribes there, and they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, what does his star refer to here? His star refers to the instant, present, living vision of Christ. And that instant, present, living vision of Christ actually leads you into the very personal, intimate, affectionate presence of Christ, which is what happened to these magi. Of course, when the magi asked this question, the scribes immediately knew where to turn in the scriptures to see where Christ was born. So they turned to Micah 5.2, which clearly says that Christ was was going to be born in Bethlehem. So the Magi left, left, uh, you know, left their presence, and the star appeared to them again, and they were full of joy. But of course, after that, you know, the, the, the scribes who saw that verse, they should have been excited by what the Magi said. They should have said, my goodness, this is a fulfillment of Micah 5.2. We want to go with you. They didn't go. They, they just didn't have a heart for Christ. And they just had were, were into the letter of the Scriptures rather than the spirit of the Scriptures. And even we know uh, Herod was concerned because he, he thought well, if Christ is born, he's going to be the Messiah of the Jewish people. He's going to replace me. So he did a terrible thing. You know, you read a little later where he had all, all of the children in the, in the vicinity of Bethlehem all killed because he did not want uh, Christ to even be born. But thank the Lord that God warned uh, Joseph in a dream about this, and so Joseph and Mary got out of Bethlehem before that slaughter took place. Thank the Lord for that. Now further, when we speak about being a star, Revelation 1.20 tells us about the seven stars 
and the seven golden lampstands. Now I'll just mention the stars. It says this, the, st- the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. The seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Saints, we all need to pray. Lord, make me a messenger of the church. What is a messenger in this sense? A messenger is someone who has a fresh message from God to God's people and for God's people. So let's just talk about Christ. Christ is not only the capital M messenger of God, he is also the fresh message from God. So in this meeting, we want him to dispense himself into us as the fresh message from God, which we always need. Now, in Malachi 2.7, it talks about the priest, and we all need to be priests. It says this, the priest's lips should keep knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Jehovah of hosts. That's Malachi 2, verse 7. We all need to be priests in the priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2. And we need to be those who are full of Christ as the living knowledge of the triune God. And we need to be full of Christ as the living instruction of the triune God, so that when we speak to others, we speak forth God as knowledge and as instruction into their being. Now, saints, it's very significant. Let me come to B. It says, the overcomers as the shining stars are the messengers of the churches. Those who are one with Christ as the messenger of God and who possess the present Christ as the living and fresh message sent by God to his people. Saints, it is so very, very important for us to pray, Lord, make me one of your messengers. Why is this important? It's important because if you look at Revelation 2 and 3 in the Lord's epistles to the seven churches, he doesn't write directly to each church. He writes to the messenger of each church. So, in Revelation 2.1, he says this, to the messenger of the, he says this to John, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, write this, write what I tell you, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, uh, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, to the messenger of the church in Pergamos, etc., etc., etc. Seven churches, all addressed to the messenger. In other words, if there is no messenger, there is no channel for the process triune God to become the fresh message to his people. We need to be the Lord's messengers so that as the duplication of Christ, as the unique message, so that he can speak in us and through us as messengers to the churches, for the churches building up. So, saints, what we see here is that without the messengers, 
there are no epistles to the seven churches. Now, how does that practically apply to each one of us? Well, saints, it applies this way, for sure this way, many other ways, but when we come to, especially when we come to a meeting, a prophesying meeting, always take that meeting as a very, very important meeting. Actually, this, the matter of prophesying, is a major part of the God-ordained way. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, clearly, you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. This is verse 31. In verse 4a, it says, he who prophesies builds up the church. How is the church going to be built up? Matthew 16, 18, the Lord tells us, I will build my church. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 4a, it says, he who prophesies builds up the church. What this means is that to prophesy is to speak for the Lord, to speak forth the Lord, and to speak the Lord into people. This is the way the Lord builds up the church. He builds up the church in and through those who speak him forth into the saints. So, saints, um, when we are in Holy Word for Morning Revival, morning by morning, we need to receive that word by means of all prayer, uh, pray it back to the Lord, uh, pray over the ministry that brings out the riches in that verse and do it for all those days and come to that meeting, that prophesying meeting with something prepared in your being to share with the saints for the building up of the church. This is a great thing. Then when you go to that meeting in that way, you are going as a messenger of the church, a messenger of the church, someone who possesses a fresh message from the Lord as the capital M messenger of God. And we possess him as the fresh message from God to God's people for the building up of the church. Now let's look at C. C says there are two ways to become an overcoming star. First, by the Bible, and second, by the sevenfold intensified spirit. So one says, we have the prophetic word made more firm, to which you do well to give heed as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, saints, when this verse says the prophetic word, it is not uh, referring to the word in a very narrow sense of predicting the future. What it is saying is that God's word, his whole word is the prophetic word. All 66 books of the Bible, every verse is the prophetic word. It is the, it is the word that is spoken to God's people and that we need to pray over so that it becomes a, the living, applied word to our being 
that we can speak into the saints for the building up of the church. Now, let's, uh, let's go to A under 1. A says this, Peter likened the word of prophecy in the scriptures to a lamp shining in a dark place. This indicates that one, this age is a dark place in the dark night. You know, Romans 13, 12, it says the night is far advanced and the day has drawn near. That's the day of the Lord's coming. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the weapons of light. Well, that's Romans 13, 12. In Romans 13, 14, just a few verses later, the Lord through Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So to put on the weapons of life, light is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our dear Lord Jesus Christ is the weapons of life for the warfare between the spirit and our spirit and the flesh. And so what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, I always wondered, how can I put on Christ? How can I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Romans 13, 14, the footnote tells us clearly what it is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What it is, is it's to live by Christ and to live out Christ, thus magnifying Christ. Then we're clothed with Christ, not just objectively as our objective righteousness, but subjectively as our subjective lived out righteousness. So again, uh, to put on the weapons of light is for the warfare between the spirit and the lusts of the flesh. That's why Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the spirit, and you shall by no means fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17 says, These oppose each other. The flesh and the spirit oppose each other so that so that you cannot do the things that you want to do in the flesh. You used to be able to do them, but the Spirit restrains you now. Thank the Lord for that, um, for that restraint. We just need to live by that restraint. Now, in 1 John 5, 19, okay, um, it says this. Let me go on after Romans 13, 12. It says, all the people of this world, are moving and acting in darkness. And 1 John 5, 19 is a very telling verse. It says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the evil one. Just consider that, saints. The whole world lies in the evil one. What that means is that the whole world remains passively in the sphere of the evil one's influence under the evil one's usurpation and manipulation. And thank the Lord, we've been transferred out of the world into Christ. Now, um, let's come to B. B says, before the dawning day of the Lord's appearing, the morning star rises in the hearts of the believers. Now, in Revelation 2, the Lord tells us that 
one of his rewards to the overcomers is that he will be the morning star to them. So before the Lord comes openly as the sun, capital S, then U-N, uh, in Malachi, it says he, when he comes back, he will be the son of righteousness. Well, to the overcomers, before that open coming, he will be the morning star to them. He will be a special reward to them. He will appear to them in a personal, secret way. You know, the morning star comes out before the sunrise, and we want him to be the morning star to us. So before the dawning day of the Lord's appearing, the, the morning star rises in the hearts of the believers who are illuminated and enlightened by giving heed to the shining word of the prophecy in the scripture. If we give heed to the word in the Bible, which shines as a lamp in a dark place, we will have his rising in our hearts to shine in the darkness of apostasy where we are today. Now, we can define apostasy as the abandonment of one's faith. This is where many believers have abandoned the faith. But we want the Lord to rise in our hearts, to shine in the darkness of apostasy where we are today before his actual appearing as the morning star. Now let's come to two. Now there are a lot of verses to these points. Again, I encourage you to take this outline back with you and you can look at the verses that I did not have time to read or index, but they're all very meaningful. Now two says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Praise the Lord. Our Lord has the seven spirits of God. He also has the seven stars. Now under this, A says, the seven spirits are one with the seven stars. Now remember, these seven stars are the messengers of the churches. So the seven spirits of God are one with the messengers of the churches who are the seven stars. And the seven stars are one with the seven spirits. B says, the seven spirits of God enable the church to be intensely living. And the seven stars enable her to be intensely shining. So saints, we need to have a prayer in us every day. Lord, fill me with yourself as the sevenfold intensified spirit of God even as the seven spirits of God. Fill me with yourself, Lord Jesus, so that I become intensely living and cause me to be one of your shining stars in this universe who is a duplication of you as the living star so that I am an intensely shining person. If we pray this, the Lord will answer this prayer. Now, C says the sevenfold intensified spirit is living and can never be replaced by the dead letters of knowledge. You know, in 2 Corinthians 3, 
I love this chapter very much. I don't have this verse on here, but in 2 Corinthians 3, I would like to mention verse 3 because Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you are a letter of Christ ministered by us, inscribed not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in tablets of hearts of flesh. So, saints, in Paul's thought, his ministry was to produce living letters of Christ. He told the Corinthians, you are a letter of Christ ministered by us, inscribed not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So, saints, the genuine New Testament ministry does some inscribing work on our heart with divine and mystical ink. And that divine and mystical ink is the spirit of the living God. And when that ink is inscribed on our heart, what is read, what can be read in our heart is actually Christ himself as the spirit of the living God. So when we become the living letter of Christ, people can read Christ in our being, people can know Christ in our being, and as the letter of Christ, we express Christ and, and we are read and Christ can be read by others in us. So this is all, we, if we wanna participate in the New Testament ministry, we need to be those who inscribe people inscribe people's hearts with the spirit of the living God. Now, if you go on to verse 6, Paul says that God made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, ministers not of the letter, but of the spirit. I'd just like to pause there. What is a minister of, of the new covenant? A minister of the new covenant is a minister of the Spirit. This shows us that the reality of the new covenant is the Spirit, the Spirit, which we just saw is the divine and mystical ink as the Spirit of the living God inscribed on our hearts so that people can read and know Christ in our being because we have become the letter of Christ. Now, it, it says we are ministers of a new covenant, ministers not of the letter. The letter is just the, the written word of God in itself. And of course, we need the written word of God. But if we just have the written word of God, that's not enough. Because um, it goes on to say, we are ministers not of the letter. But we are ministers of the, of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So this is why the Lord said in John 5, 39-40, he told uh, the religionists, opposers, he said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is these Scriptures that testify concerning me yet you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. 
So saints, whenever we come to the scriptures, we need to come to the Lord. We should even pray a simple prayer. When we're reading the Bible, Lord Jesus, I come to you in the Bible. I come to you because I want to gain more of you as life in my reading of the Bible. We always need to come to the Lord when we come to the Bible. And this is why we receive this word by means of all prayer. According to Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, when we do this, this written word, which in Greek is the logos, L-O-G-O-S, becomes the instant and applied word to us, which in Greek is rhema, R-H-E-M-A. This instant word, this applied word, I would say this word is a word with our, with your name on it. The Lord speaks something to you personally. That is rhema. That is, that word is actually, actually has become the spirit who gives life. This is what we need. We need to convert the information in this Bible into revelation and into the Lord's instant speaking to us by praying over and with this word, by pray reading this word and by receiving this word in a spirit and atmosphere of prayer. Now, D says this, the seven stars are the messengers of the churches. They are the spiritual ones in the churches, the ones who bear the responsibility for the testimony of Jesus. They should be of the heavenly nature and should be in a heavenly position like stars. Now let's come to Roman numeral two. The principle of the Lord's recovery is seen with Daniel and his companions. I love this, 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 uh, these words, exact words in the scriptures. Daniel and his companions. Who were his companions? Look at look in the parentheses. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know, we always speak of his companions according to their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them, and we will see that those are names of idols, I-D-O-L-S. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them identified with idols, but they're saints. If you don't know this, I want you to pray over this. You must know Daniel's, the names of Daniel's companions. They're names from God's heart. What are the names? Hananiah. Mishael, and Azariah. So these, Daniel and his companions, they were absolutely one with God in their victory over Satan's devices. You can see this in these verses from Daniel. Now let's come to A. A says, in his devilish tempting of Daniel and his companions, Nebuchadnezzar changed their names which indicated that they belonged to God 
and he changed their names to names that made them one with idols. Look, un look under A. One says, the name Daniel, meaning God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning the prince of Bel, or the favorite of Bel. Bel is an idol. Bel is an idol. And again, um, you know, anything that replaces God or occupies the position of God in our lives or in our being is an idol. But praise the Lord for Daniel. You know, my fourth son, which is he's my last son, I came back, I was in Taipei for a while, and I came back from Taipei just in time to see the birth of my fourth son. For some reason, you know, Ruthie and I, we had three boys by that time. And for some reason, we thought for sure this fourth child is going to be a girl. So we had a girl's name picked out. Now, we should have been, should have been fully open to the Lord. We should have had both a boy and a girl's name picked out. But we were so set on having a girl that we had a girl's name picked out. Well, lo and behold, here comes a boy. And, and we, don't, we don't have a name on hand. So Ruthie and I fellowship and we pray. We pray together. And what does the Lord want our son's name to be? You know, at that time I was reading the book of Daniel. So I proposed this to Ruth. I said, Ruth, I'm reading the book of Daniel right now. He is absolutely wonderful. How about we name him Daniel? She said, amen. So that is our, our son, our final son's name. He's named after Daniel. So it means God is my judge. What does that mean? It means we want God to judge anything in our being that doesn't match him. We want him to judge anything in our being that doesn't match him. Now, two says the name Hananiah, meaning Yah, which is short for Jehovah, has graciously given or favored of Yah, favored of Jehovah. Don't you want to be favored of Jehovah? Don't you want to be a person who is graciously given by Jehovah to God's people? Surely we do. But his name was changed to Shadrach, which means enlightened by the sun god, which we don't want to be enlightened by the sun god. Now, the name Mishael, I like this. It means who is what God is. Who is what God is. That means that God is the incomparable one, that you can't describe him. Who is what God is. This name was changed to Meshach meaning who can be like the goddess Shaq. Finally, 4 says the name Azariah, meaning Yah has helped, was changed to Abednego, meaning the faithful servant of the fire god Nago. But we want to be a person who has Jehovah as our living help. So saints, uh, don't automatically say, oh, Daniel's companions were Shad Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are idolatrous names. 
in our consciousness, we should always have the sensation and realization, even memorization, that Daniel's companions are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I encourage especially the young people to know what their names mean intrinsically. Now let's come to B. And beginning with B, we will see six cases in Daniel 1 through 6 which show what God's economy is and how God's economy can be carried out. So there are six cases as illustrations. Now, the first case is in B. Daniel and his companions were victorious over the demonic diet. One says Nebuchadnezzar's devilish temptation was first to seduce the four brilliant young descendants of God's defeated elect, Daniel and his three companions, to be defiled by partaking of his unclean food, food offered to idols. Two says, for Daniel and his companions to eat that food would have been to take in the defilement, to take in the idols, and thus to become one with Satan. Always remember that there's, just, there's even this adage in the world that we become what we eat. That's true. If you eat Christ as your spiritual food, you will become Christ in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. Now, um, we, let's come to three. Three says, when Daniel and his companions refused to eat Nebuchadnezzar's unclean food and chose instead to eat vegetables, in principle, they rejected the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and took the tree of life, which caused them to be one with God. Okay, I'll, I'll just say that much. We have to go on. I encourage you to look at these verses. Now, 4 says, the Lord's recovery, listen to this. We can, we can define the Lord's recovery from so many angles. This is one precious angle. The Lord's re recovery is the recovery of the eating of Jesus for the building up of the church. Isn't that wonderful? Saints, we need to eat Jesus every day as our spiritual food so that the church can be built up. This is the Lord's recovery. So, we see that in, in the full ministry of Christ, we see in the Gospels, he's in the stage of incarnation. In Acts and in the Epistles, he's in the stage of inclusion, which is, which, which is, is according to the all-inclusive spirit. In Revelation, He's in the stage of intensification, which means he's the sevenfold intensified spirit. So in this third stage, what we see is the intensification of the triune God to bring the degraded church back to the enjoyment of himself as the tree of life, the hidden manna, and the feast for the finalization of God's eternal economy. The tree of life is mentioned in the epistle to Ephesus. The hidden manna is mentioned in the epistle to Pergamos. And the feast 
is mentioned in the epistle to Laodicea. And so the Lord wants to bring us back to the enjoyment of Christ as the tree of life, the hidden manna, and the feast for the finalization of his eternal economy. Genesis 2.9 says clearly that the tree of life is, I'll quote the Bible, good for food, good for food. We have a hymn in our hymnal, in our supplement, that says God is good for food. You know, when I first came into the church life and the saints were singing that, God is good for food, yes, God is good for food, there was a, there was a lump in my throat. I, I couldn't get the, the words out. I, I said to myself, I said, Lord, I didn't know what, what, what the church was at that point. I didn't have a revelation of the church. But I said, Lord, I know that these people really love you, but maybe they've gone a little bit too far by writing this song, God is good for food. But that song is absolutely scriptural because Genesis 2.9 tells us that God as the tree of life is good for food. That is a quote. So again, the Lord's recovery is the recovery of the eating of Jesus, who Jesus is God, for the building up of the church, the eating of Jesus as our spiritual food. Now, five says we can eat Jesus by eating his words and by being careful to contact and be with those who call on him out of a pure heart. So Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them, and your word became to me the gladness and joy of my heart. Saints, you don't have to raise your hand or answer this aloud, but just consider, morning by morning, I hope you spend time with the Lord. After you spend that time with the Lord in the word, has that word become the gladness of your heart? Has that word become the joy of your heart? If it hasn't, you have just gone through the motions with Holy Word for Morning Revival. We need to pray over the Word, with the Word, and in the Word, and pray ourselves into the Word until that Word becomes the gladness and joy of our heart. Now, related to our companionships, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, evil companionships corrupt good morals. Proverbs 13, 20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be troubled. Now, why do I quote these two verses? Because this is another way that we can take in the Lord as our spiritual food. It's by contacting the proper people. Why is that? Here's the reason why. To eat is to contact things outside of us and to receive them into us with the result that they eventually become our inner constitution. So we not only contact the word outside of us and receive the word into us, we also contact the proper people. We contact wise men. And if we contact wise men, their wisdom will be received into us. 
and will become our inner constitution. Christ as our wisdom will become our inner constitution. Now let's come to the next case. C says, Daniel and his companions were victorious over the devilish blinding that prevents people from seeing the great human image and the crushing stone as the divine history within human history. So this is all seen in Daniel 2. You know, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. This dream terrified him, actually. But he didn't remember what he dreamed. So he called, uh, you know, the wise men, uh, the conjurers, the counselors. He called them all together. He said, tell me my dream and tell me its interpretation. They said to, they said to him, they said, oh, king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. He said, no, no, no. If I do that, I can't trust your interpretation. I want you to tell me exactly what I dreamt and tell me the interpretation. They said, no, no human being can do this, king. So the king was so upset, he was going to slaughter them all, which included Daniel and his companions. So I love what Daniel 2 says. Daniel went to his companion with went to his companions. He told them the situation. They prayed together, and the Lord revealed what that great human image was to Daniel with its intrinsic significance. So Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar and he told him, There is a God in the heavens who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to this. What will happen in the last days? If we, if we get into this dream and its interpretation and its intrinsic significance, we will have a living, intrinsic knowledge of revelation of what will happen in the last days. Well, this great human image signifies the totality of human government, which is actually embodies human history. So the head of that image of gold signifies the Babylonian empire. The breast and the arms of silver signify the Medo-Persian empire. The abdomen and thighs of bronze signify the Grecian Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great. And the legs of iron and the feet are partly of iron and partly of clay. This signifies the Roman Empire. And then on those feet, you know, the feet are partly of iron and partly of clay, which means uh, they're part autocracy and part democracy. And those 10 toes, if you read the book of Revelation carefully, those 10 toes signify the last 10 kings who will be under Antichrist. Well, what happens in Daniel 2 is that a stone comes. This stone is cut out without hands. This stone is not merely Christ. This stone is Christ with his overcomers. This stone 
is Christ, united, mingled, and incorporated with his overcomers as his overcoming bride. Christ in, in his overcomers, united, mingled, and incorporated with his overcoming bride, come down from the heavens, strikes this image at its feet of iron and clay, and crushes them. And it says, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at once, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Now, what does this mean? It means that when Christ comes back, he will annihilate all of human government. He will set up his kingdom on this earth, his kingdom. That stone that struck the image will become a great mountain, which is the kingdom of God that fills the whole earth. Verses 44 and 45 of Daniel 2 tell us that the God of heavens will raise up a kingdom, which is that mountain, which will never be destroyed, and its reign will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Okay, I'll just say that much. There are a number of other verses, very, very significant. But um, let me go on to point two. Two says, Christ produces his bride as the new creation by growth, transformation, and maturity. Thus, there is the urgent need of maturity. Hebrews 6.1, the Lord charges us through Paul, let us be brought on to maturity. One translation, which Brother Lee quoted from, says, let's go on to maturity, meaning we're cooperating with the Lord who brings us on to maturity. Well, we have to realize maturity is the last stage of transformation. What is transformation? Transformation is to be metabolically changed in our natural life. Whereas maturity is to be filled with the divine life that changes us. Maturity is the last stage of transformation, which is to be metabolically changed in our natural life until we're filled with the divine life that changes us. That means we have arrived at a state of maturity. When we arrive at that stage, at that stage or that state, we can be people who bless others with the, with the triune God. We can bless, bless others with the divine trinity and his divine dispensing of himself into people. So what is blessing? Blessing is the overflow of life, overflow of life. Now, uh, let's come to three. Christ as the living and precious stone, foundation stone, cornerstone, and top stone of God's building infuses us with himself as the preciousness to transform us into living and precious stones for his building. You remember we saw previously that 1 Peter 2 tells us that Christ himself is the preciousness to his believers 
We want him to, to be dispensed into us to make us like Daniel was a man of preciousness. Now let's come to D. This is the next illustrative case which shows us what God's economy is and how his economy can be carried out. D says, Daniel and his companions were victorious over the seduction of idol worship, of idol worship. Now one says, whatever is not the true God in our regenerated spirit is an idol replacing God. Whatever is not in the spirit or of the spirit is an idol. You know, it's amazing. We wouldn't think this in our natural man. But the last verse of 1 John 5, verse 21, it says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And as I shared in a previous message, in Ezekiel 14, 3, the Lord told Ezekiel, son of man, these people have set up idols in their hearts. This shows that an idol, the idol that the Lord was talking about to Ezekiel and to John was not something outward, although it can be something outward. It was something inward that, that was a replacement of God, something that we esteemed higher than God, something that, uh, that uh, replaced God, that was not of the of the spirit, and not in the spirit. Now, two goes on to say, say, the enemy of the body is the self that replaces God. You see, so the self can be an idol. Our self can be an idol that replaces God. So the enemy of the body is the self that replaces God with its self-interest, self-exaltation, self-glory, self-beauty, and self-strength. In the body and for the body, we deny the self and do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Saints, I, I, I pray over this frequently, and I hope you will too. Whenever you take care of people, just pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, save me from preaching myself. I want to preach Christ Jesus as Lord to everyone that I speak to. Now, saints, I would add a verse here when I said that the self replaces God so the self can become an idol. In Leviticus 14.9, it talks to us about the cleansing of the leper. And it, it tells us that for the leper to be cleansed, he had to shave all his hair off. But it mentions Leviticus 14.9 doesn't just tell the leper, uh, shave all your hair off. Leviticus 14.9 says specifically to shave the hair off your head, shave the hair off your eyebrow, shave the hair of your beard, shave the hair off your whole body. Why does Leviticus 14.9 say these particular things because all of these aspects that I talked to you about are aspects of the self. 
the, the hair on the head signifies self-glory. The hair of the eyebrows signifies self-beauty. The hair of the beard signifies self-assumed honor. And the hair of the body signifies natural strength, man's natural strength and ability. All of that needs to be shaved off by the razor of the cross. And praise the Lord, the cross is in the all-inclusive compound spirit. So when we are really enjoying the all-inclusive spirit, the, the effectiveness of the death of Christ, the cross is in that spirit, it becomes a razor to shave off our self-glory, our self-beauty, our self-assumed honor, and the exercise of our natural strength and ability. Saints, when this happens, I would say this, when we have nothing and we are nothing, we shall be cleansed of our leprosy. And of course, leprosy is a great sign of rebellion against God. When we are in the self, we are in rebellion against God. We want to reject ourselves. We want to exercise our spirit to reject the self and live by another life, the divine life, which is Christ himself. So we deny the self and do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. The self is a terrible thing. We have our self-assumed honor. Many times, you know, there might be a new one, and he might uh, say something to you. He doesn't realize that you've been in the church for 20 years, and he says, oh, brother, you need to turn to your spirit, and you get offended. He, there's something in you that wants to say, brother, don't you realize how long I've been in the church life or in the Lord's recovery? What does that mean? That means your, your beard needs to be shaved. I mean, typologically. That means you want some self-assumed honor. You know, saints, recently, um, you know, the reason why we get offended is because we're in the self. You know, recently, I went through something, that, that a very difficult situation. And uh, anyway, I can't say too much because I, I don't want to expose the situation too much. But, you know, it was hard for me to get through this situation. But then the Lord spoke to me, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. And you remember 1 Corinthians 6 is on the Corinthians having lawsuits against one another. And at one point, Paul asked this rhetorical question. He said, why not rather be wronged? In other words, even if you're wronged, why not rather be wronged? Just take the cross and be wrong. Everything will be okay. Enjoy the Lord. In that enjoyment of the Lord is the cross that will make you willing to be wronged and to gain more of God. Anyway, I really appreciate the Lord speaking that verse to me. Now, three says, Daniel's companions had a true spirit of martyrdom. They stood for the Lord as the unique God and against idol worship at the cost of their lives, being thrown at the command of Nebuchadnezzar into a blazing furnace. Now, if you look at the footnotes, on Daniel 3, of course, we noticed that Daniel wasn't one of the ones thrown into a furnace. The footnote says Daniel must have been away 
praying for his three companions uh, in this situation. So uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Nebuchadnezzar built this huge idol, and he wanted everyone to bow down to it, and Daniel's uh, companions refused to bow down to it, and they told Nebuchadnezzar, they said, our God is able to save us if he wants to. And they said this to the king, I love this. They said, even if he doesn't save us, we still will not bow down and worship this image. In other words, he's our God. No matter what, we don't care. It's up to him, his will, what he wants to do with us. But we will only worship and bow down to him and no one else. When Nebuchadnezzar got furious, he made the furnace seven times hotter. He made it so hot that the men who threw them into the furnace got burned by the blazing fire. Uh, the furnace, it says the furnace had been heated to an extreme and the flame and the fire slew those men who carried up Daniel's companions to the furnace. Now, 4 says when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he saw four men walking in the midst of the fire. The fourth one was the excellent Christ as the Son of Man who had come to be with his three suffering, persecuted overcomers and to make the fire a pleasant place in which to walk about. Isn't that wonderful, saints? Maybe you feel you're in a blazing furnace right now. Saints, you are not there alone. You need to realize there is a capital O overcomer in your spirit. He is in you because he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is not only in you, he is with you, and he is walking with you in that environment of a blazing furnace. And he will, by that, by his very presence, he makes that blazing furnace a pleasant place. Five says the three overcomers did not need to ask God to deliver them from the furnace. Christ as the Son of Man, the one who is qualified and capable of sympathizing with God's people in everything, came to be their companion and take care of them in their suffering by his presence. Saints, his presence means everything to us. By his presence, making their place of suffering a pleasant situation. Now we'll come to the next case in Daniel 4. He says, Daniel and his companions were victorious over the covering that hinders people from seeing the ruling of the heavens by the God of the heavens. Now we'll read these points and we'll see what this means. One says, as those who have been chosen by God to be his people for Christ's preeminence, we are under God's heavenly rule for the purpose of making Christ preeminent. But Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't, he didn't take this word. So in Daniel 4, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, again, uh, he had a dream and he asked Daniel to interpret it for him. And Daniel told him the interpretation. 
He said, he said uh, to the king, he said, you shall be driven out from among mankind and with the beasts of the field shall be your dwelling place. You shall be made to eat grass, eat grass as bulls do. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you. That is actually seven weeks, 49 days. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you come to know that the Most High is the ruler over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever it, he wills. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the ruler over the kingdom of men. God as the Most High is the ruler and he gave you, he gave you the kingdom of Babylon. It, it wasn't even, uh, it didn't even come into your possession by yourself. And so Nebuchadnezzar heard this word and Daniel ended by saying to him, he said, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will come to be assured to you after you have come to know that the heavens do rule. The heavens rule. That means God rules. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't take that word. He forgot that word. In Daniel 4, 30 to 32, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar, he, uh, you know, he was walking, you know, around his palace. And he said, is this not Babylon the great, which I have built up as a royal house by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And it says, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came down from heaven. To you it is spoken, King Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom has passed on from you. And everything that Daniel said to him came to pass until he came to know that the Most High is the ruler over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. You know, eventually, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar blessed, exalted, and honored the Most High God. And in verse 37, which is point two, he concluded by saying, he is able to abase those who walk in pride. Saints, we all need to pray, Lord, save me from my pride. I can never forget in the book, How to Be a Coworker and an Elder. There's one major point on pride with a number of points. Here's one of the points. Pride makes you a top fool. And so we need to pray, Lord, save me from my pride in every way. Now, F comes to another illustration. Daniel and his companions were victorious over the ignorance concerning the result of the debauchery before God and the insult to his holiness. Now, this was King Belshazzar, who was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar, number one, says Belshazzar's taking the vessels that were for God's worship in his holy temple at Jerusalem and using them in worshiping idols was an insult to God's holiness. Belshazzar was having a big party, you can say a great feast he made for 1,000 of his lords, and he had the audacity to bring the vessels out that they had taken 
from the temple, and they drank wine from those vessels. This was a great offense to God, an insult to God's holiness. So this goes on to say that Belshazzar, he should have learned the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. However, he did not learn the lesson and suffered as a law, suffered as a result. Saints, we always need to learn the spiritual lessons from our history. You know, we have a history, not just general church history, but we have a history among us in the recovery. We need to learn from the mistake, even the mistakes in our history. Learn the lessons. Well, Belshazzar did not learn the lesson. Now, as they were having this feast, as they were in this debauchery, as they were drinking from the vessels from God's house, it says this in verse 5. Uh, Belshazzar, he looked at the wall, and there were, in verse 5, it says, the fingers of a man's hand came forth and wrote opposite the lampstand upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw, he saw this. He saw the hand. Can you imagine this? The king was so frightened that if you read verse 6, it says the joints of his hips loosened and his knees began to knock together. And that is to be really afraid. So what did, what did Belshazzar do? Uh, he called Daniel to interpret this whole thing. And uh, Daniel did interpret it. He said the writing on the wall, uh, you know, that was inscribed, was, uh, I, I, I can't pronounce this right, but you can read the verses. It's Daniel 5, 24 through 31. It says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, a parson. Now, you'll see uh, what this means. Daniel said this, God, to Belshazzar, God has numbered your kingdom and brought it to an end. That's what Mene means. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found to be lacking. Parents, your kingdom has been divided and been given to the Medes and Persians. Now, the reason why a parson is mentioned after Tekel is actually a parson is the plural of the word, uh, of the word uh, peres, which means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, saints, here is something remarkable. Daniel interpreted this. He said, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, listen to this. It says, in that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. In that very night, he was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of, of 62. In other words, because Belshazzar did not learn the lesson from his spiritual ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was in a situation of debauchery as an insult to God's holiness, in that very night, world history changed. In that very night, I say again, 
the history of the world changed because Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain and Babylon was no longer the prominent government in this, in this earth. The government of the Medo-Persian Empire was the prominent government and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now, two says, you know, this is when they're trying to find out how they can solve this riddle. I'll just read this. Uh, this is about Daniel. It says, an excellent spirit and knowledge and insight and the interpretation of dreams, the declaring of riddles, and the resolving of problems were found in this Daniel. This is Belshazzar's mother saying this to Belshazzar. And, and Daniel said to Belshazzar, he said, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, though you knew everything about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, now I'll just read the, the final verse, verse 20. This is very sobering to me. He said, Daniel said this to, to Belshazzar, but the God in whose hand is your breath and to whom all your ways belong, you have not honored. Saints, our breath is in God's hand. Our ways belong to God because our breath is in God's hand, because our ways belong to God, we need to honor God. In Judges 9, 8, and 9, it says that we honor God by the oil from the olive tree. The oil signifies the Spirit. So the way that we honor God in the New Testament is by living and walking by the Spirit in our spirit. And Judges 9, 8 through 9, goes on to say the way we honor man is by ministering the Spirit into them. So we need to walk by the Spirit to honor God, minister the Spirit to honor man. Okay, now we come to G. Uh, this is another illustrative case. It says Daniel and his companions were victorious over the subtlety that prohibited the faithfulness of the overcomers in the worship of God. And, you know, this happened out of jealousy, actually. There were, uh, you know, the king, he had chief ministers and satraps, and they wanted him because they were jealous of Daniel. They said, Daniel was just such a good administrator, such a wonderful God man that they couldn't accuse him of anything. And they said, if we're going to find something, it's going to have to be something related to his religion. So they persuaded the king to establish an edict. And this edict said that anyone who makes a petition within the next 30 days to any god or man uh, besides the king will be cast into the lion's den. Well, saints, if that was us, we might have said, well, I'm just going to take a vacation from prayer for 30 days, and then I'll come back to it after 30 days. But Daniel did not do this. It says that when Daniel knew that the edict was signed, he went to his house in his upper room. He had windows open to Jerusalem. This is, this is Daniel 6.10. 
and three times daily he knelt on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before his God because he had always done so previously. In other words, Daniel prayed at the risk of his life. He didn't care about that edict. He was still going to pray with his windows open toward Jerusalem, which means that his windows were open toward the goal of God's eternal economy, which in New Testament terms is the new Jerusalem. Now notice Daniel 6.10 says he gave thanks before his God. Saints, the one sign of a, of a man of prayer is that he's a thankful person. If you're a person who's thankful, that indicates you're a praying person. Okay, now let me come to one under G. One says the center of Daniel 6 is man's prayer for the carrying out of God's economy. Man's prayers are like the rails that pave the way for God's move to go on. There is no other way to bring God's economy into fullness and into fulfillment except by prayer. This is the inner secret of this chapter, which is Daniel 6. Then 2 says Daniel prayed with his windows open toward Jerusalem. Through his gracious prayer, God brought Israel back to their father's land, which was the land of Canaan, the good land. Now 3 quotes Daniel 6.10, which I just quoted to you about Daniel praying three times a day. The last point says this, 4, God will listen to our prayer. When our prayer is toward Christ, typified by the Holy Land, toward the kingdom of God, typified by the Holy City, and toward the house of God, typified by the Holy Temple as the goal in God's eternal economy. So 1 Kings 8, 48 and 49, charges us to pray to God toward the land, toward toward the land, toward the city, and toward the temple. The land signifies the all-inclusive Christ. The city signifies the holy city as the kingdom of God. And the house of God is typified by the holy temple. So when we, when we pray, if we're praying for a person, don't aim your prayers at that person aim your prayers at God's interests. Your prayer should always be toward Christ, toward the kingdom of God, and toward the house of God as the goal in God's eternal economy. Surely we need to pray for one another, but don't aim your prayer at a person. Aim your prayer at God's interests for that person. So, um, again, our prayer should always be aimed actually, at Christ and the church as the contents of God's eternal economy. Christ typified by the Holy Land, the kingdom of God typified by the Holy City, and the house of God typified by the Holy Temple as the goal in God's eternal economy. So, uh, saints, forgive me. I went a little bit longer, but I think this is tremendously marvelous that in Daniel 1 through 6, we see the victory of the overcomers seen with Daniel and his companions. And saints, in this particular outline, I would like 
you to make sure you get these three points. The first point is this. Uh, how can Daniel 12, 3 be fulfilled with everyone in the local churches being a shining star? This is in Roman number one. Two, what is the significance of the names of Daniel's companions? We talked about this. Three, how do the cases in Daniel 1 show as illustrations what God's economy is and how God's economy can be carried out? If you can answer those three questions, you have the intrinsic significance of message three. Okay, I will stop here and uh, I just say praise the Lord to all of you saints viewing this message. Thank the Lord for the victory of the overcomer seen with Daniel and his companions.